Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke for any five-year-olds that might be listening. What do you call a pony's cough? A little horse. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from essayist Megan Dom. Her provocative new anthology, Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, is out next week. It is better than that joke. Later, we'll speak with actor Aubrey Plaza about starring in the new Hal Hartley movie, Ned Rifle. Also coming up, comedians Tom Sharpling and John Worcester provide cheesesteak etiquette. Singer-songwriter Laura Marling suggests songs for a tiny dinner party. And author John Ronson talks about public shaming in the Internet age. And shame on you if you don't stick around to hear all that. First, though, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Yemen's embattled president has left his country under Saudi protection. Investigators looking into the final moments of German Wings Flight 9525. Downton Abbey's sixth season will be its last. And now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with our friend Anna Sale. She is the host of Death, Sex, and Money. That is a podcast from WNYC about the aforementioned topics. Anna, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I want to talk about the fancy bus in San Francisco. Oh, the about fancy this? bus. This is, this is from a company called Leap, just launched this week. And for $6, which is a little higher than the $2.25 price you pay for a ride on the public bus, for a $6 ride, you get to be on this fancy bus with reclaimed wood, Wi-Fi, and even the option to buy cold-pressed juices. <laughs> of course. Oh, man. So this fits in nicely to the, the narrative we've been hearing for a long time about the techification of San Francisco with the $4 toast and, you know, wealthy techies separating themselves from everybody else in the city. Yeah, and I, but I think that that's not a really fair for the Leap Bus because it's $6 a ride. It's not like it's a private limousine that's only taking you and your coworkers to Google, for example. So it's a little different, but it made me think, like, why does San Francisco, like, why does the future have to be so annoying? (laughs) (laughs) It is, right? We're talking about a commute to work in a city that's seven miles wide. Does every minute need to be, you know, luxury? Are these normal buses? Because in San Francisco, you'd expect them to be maybe eco-conscious. From what I understand, mm-hmm. they're actually like heavy-duty buses, so they're not like running on great sustainable fuel or anything like that, but they have couches and stools, uh. so it feels, it's supposed to feel like a cafe as you're making your commute to work. See, I expected more from the future. I expected like hovercrafts yeah, with sure. like running on ideas or something. <laughs> I also expect like really good public transportation in the future, and, and that's what yeah. my fear is uh-huh. about this, is it's, oh, these are riders who aren't going to keep participating in public transportation. Clearly, you're future is a lot more progressive than the, the one that we're actually building, <laughs> sadly. But Anna Sale, thank you very much for the small talk. Sure. Thanks for having me. And now for some cold-pressed cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our internationally revered history lesson with booze. Let's start with the history. Around this time back in 1909, Arctic explorer Robert Peary became the first man to set foot on the North Pole. Or did he? Hmm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Forget Ali versus Fraser. The biggest fight of the 20th century was Robert Peary versus Frederick Cook. They were both explorers, and they loved cold places. Cook claimed to be the first guy to summit Alaska's Mount McKinley, while Peary specialized in expeditions into the vast Arctic Circle. The two were friendly rivals until 1909. 
That's when Peary returned from an Arctic expedition and announced he and his crew had dog-sledded to the North Pole, the first men ever to get there. Only problem? Just weeks before, Cook had returned from a long Arctic expedition and announced he'd reached the Pole a year earlier. A public battle ensued. Newspapers polled readers about which man they believed. Peary's supporters painted Cook as a fraud, who not only hadn't reached the pole, but never summited McKinley either. Eventually, a congressional committee was convened to weigh the evidence. They named Peary first man to the pole. That's still what history books say. But is it the truth? Who knows? True. Cook's own crewmen later contradicted his polar claims, and turns out he did fib about the whole McKinley thing. But Peary's claims are suspect, too. In the 80s, several studies of his records concluded he'd missed the pole by miles. So maybe neither Cook nor Peary was first. In which case, the runners-up were probably a crew of 16 airmen back in 1926 who floated to the North Pole in a blimp. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to pair along with it. I'm joined by Bob Picorni. He is bartender at Lavelle's Bistro in Fairbanks, Alaska, pretty much as close as we can get to the Arctic Circle and still get a cocktail. Is that fair to say, Bob? I think that's probably true, yeah. Do you get a lot of explorers who are making their way even further north coming through your joint? Absolutely, we do, yeah. can always kind of tell they're pretty sunburned and grizzled, can kind of pick them out of a crowd. And they're missing some fingers, maybe? or <laughs> Yeah, quite likely. So what's in your drink? So when you're thinking about these two guys, it's the first quarter of the 20th century, right? They're Americans, so it's got to be whiskey. That makes sense. But also, they're bitter, because I think neither of them really made it to the pole. So on top of that whiskey, you're going with Campari. Okay. But you're, it's still not bitter enough, so you need two dashes of bitters, you know, maybe Angostura. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they thought they made it to the pole, so they're celebrating. So on top of that is a little bit of champagne. All right. Finally, and this is sort of silly, but we're doing it anyway, you blend it. This is a okay. blended drink. All right. Like Jimmy Buffett in a blender. So that's it. That's the Bitter Explorer. So the name, you're, you're sticking with the name, the Bitter Explorer. I'm doing it. Now, I have I'm a question. It. So you're, you're a bartender in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. Do yeah. people order a lot of icy, slushy drinks? Because it seems to me more like a hot toddy culture. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Um, it's not. I don't think I've served a hot drink all winter. Huh. I don't know what it is, but my girlfriend is a graduate student. And in fact, we talked about this last night. She's an anthropology student. She thought that these guys could never have made a hot drink anyway. Oh, There's nothing growing you know, above the Arctic Circle. So they wouldn't have been able to make a fire. So All incidentally, right. a frozen drink, I think, is quite appropriate. Wow. So that's that's verified by a scholar. This is the It most, is. It totally is. This is a, a very special edition of History Lesson with Booze. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, Rico, it sounds like Bob's girlfriend is kind of a cocktail detective. Yeah. You know? It's, it's a nice. job I didn't know existed, but it sounds like a pretty great gig. Yeah. You keep a shaker in a in your shoulder holster instead of a revolver. Look out for CSI VSOP Ooh. coming soon. Netflix. In the meantime, people, <laughs> you can find our drink recipes at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. 
So we've made small talk, had a drink, now this party needs some music. And here with suggestions is singer-songwriter Laura Marling. Three of her four albums have been nominated for Britain's prestigious Mercury Prize, and in 2011, the NME named her Best Solo Artist. Her new album comes out this week. It's called Short Movie. Here she is to DJ your next very small party. Hello, I'm Laura Marling, and this is my dinner party playlist. My first track would be My Dance by Sidé Touré. He's a Malian singer and guitarist. I was going to choose Fela Kuti, but then I thought, you want to like one-up your guests, and everyone knows Fela Kuti. In my mind, the dinner party's in like a beautiful apartment in Paris, and it would be just me and two other people, which is like sometimes is the best thing for a conversation and sometimes the most awkward. This song, I'd have it ready to go as people were arriving, so I'd keep putting it back to the beginning if people hadn't arrived yet. I think it's important to have, you know, like a, a welcoming, happy soundtrack but I'm going to get weirder as the evening goes on. So the next track is by um, a piano player called Chili Gonzalez. It's called Manifesto. I first heard this song when I was living in L.A., actually, where, where I don't live anymore. But um, an English friend of mine had come over. He was a piano player, and we were drinking wine together one evening, and he, he showed me a YouTube clip or something of this chap who came in out of nowhere into this crummy room and started playing this beautiful song on a crummy piano. And it, I just thought it was extraordinary. This piece of music is incredibly evocative of something you don't really know what. It kind of evokes a memory that you don't, you're not entirely sure is your own. And I think he's actually a master of that, Chili Gonzalez. I feel like it's the right setting for a candlelit awkward dinner between three people. So, my next song of the evening would be Miles Davis, Sivad. I think that's how you pronounce it. There's a lot of use of wah pedals, and it sounds like a lot of instruments are talking at you, and if you were in the wrong state of mind, it could push you over the edge. collect records made in 1969. There was a lot of freedom in that year for some reason, that people did a lot of experimenting. And this record, Live Evil, is just the weirdest. Like, that would make you believe he was an alien, like he wasn't from this planet. It sounds like the inner workings of a man on the edge of a breakdown. So it would really push people into the surreal at the dinner party. 
If I was forced to play one of my own songs at a dinner party, which I think would probably make it the last dinner party that I'd ever be allowed to throw, I would play Warrior and then send everyone home terrified. Well, I can't be your horse anymore You're not the warrior I've been looking for it's me doing a finger-picking part and then we bowed an electric guitar and put it through a memory man. So there's quite a trippy, swooshing, panning, echoing thing going on in the background. So it's not an easy or sort of sweet listen. So it wouldn't be a good track for a dinner party now I think about it. <laughs> Go face the Lord on your own You have my love But it will not make you a dinner party playlist courtesy of Laura Marling. Her new album is called Short Movie. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, actor Aubrey Plaza introduces herself. Aubrey's deadpan humor has uh, now followed her into her film career. Couldn't have said it better myself. I agree. Plus, comedian Tignataro bears it, but physically cannot grin while doing so when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor for the brain, gut, and spleen. Mm. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comedy duo Tom Sharpling and John Worster answer your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, another comic, Tig Notaro, bleeds for her art. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's actor Aubrey Plaza. She's probably best known as April Ludgate, the apathetic assistant on the beloved TV comedy Parks and Recreation. Of course. But she also appears in films like Scott Pilgrim vs. The World and Safety Not Guaranteed. This week, she stars in the movie Ned Rifle from cult indie director Hal Hartley. It's the third in his trilogy of movies about a working-class family whose lives are turned upside down by a rogue named Henry Fool. When I met with Plaza, I was just about to read my introduction of her, when she beat me to it. And we begin. Aubrey's uh, deadpan humor since mm-hmm. Parks and Rec mm-hmm. has now followed her into her film career as a Hal Hartley. Um, you're, you're great at this. Character. You could be. She um, takes her deadpan skills and uses them in the independent yeah. film Ned you, Rifle. You could, you could be a host. <laughs> you know what? Actually, know what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to look up a synonym for deadpan so I don't say that word. Oh, God, I hate that word. But. It needs to be acknowledged. Um, well, you know, I have something to say about that word, okay. actually. Let's hear it. Well, I was doing interviews with Hal mm-hmm. at South by Southwest, and it was so nice to do interviews with him and have people almost ask him the same questions that they ask me. And someone said something about deadpan and my style, and Hal kind of pointed out that when you say something's deadpan, you're actually, what you're really saying is that that person is not being obvious about their motivation that you have to actually kind of pay more attention to what they're saying because they're not being so obvious about it. That's interesting. That's exactly right. By limiting one's expression, the actor kind of gives greater emphasis to other parts of the scene. It was interesting to me because I'm so used to hearing that word thrust upon me. Yeah. And it it always has a negative feeling for Mm -hmm. me, I think, because I'm just so associated with it that Mm -hmm. after a while I'm like, ugh. Well, it's like a label, and that's it's uncomfortable like a, to be. Stop labeling me, America. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you about that, but maybe you can help me with one thing so we can move on to talk about other things, which is for people who aren't familiar with Hal Hartley. 
He does have a distinct style. Mm-hmm. You know, from your perspective, how, how is what he does different from other filmmakers? Well, I would have to say that his writing is so different. It's very philosophical. It's a, a lot of his characters are, are contemplating the meaning of life always in different ways. And it reads like a novel, almost, his scripts. It's very stylized and very specific. I move by how intimately you've engaged in my poetry. It means the world to me. What do you want? A documentary, a YouTube feed, a series of tweets, whatever you want, just ask. Stop doing your blog. Oh. Decisive, committed, admittedly obscure, work indifferent to mainstream approval and unafraid of confrontation with moral and aesthetic absolutes, this, more than you might imagine, is what keeps people from jumping out windows and under trains. Adding to mass cultural self-congratulation is, of course, its own reward, cheap, immediate, and disposable as it is. So you think it's okay for me to be unpopular? Oh, I think it's necessary. So I'm trying, I don't want to get too lost in this movie because I'm so familiar with Hal Hartley and I just watched the film and I'm trying to keep in mind the listeners who haven't seen it. So let me stick, step back for a second. Who cares about them? <laughs> I have to care about them or I won't have a job. But I'm th- kidding. I know. So let's quickly explain the plot of the movie to people. Well, it's really about a boy. Ned Rifle is the boy who is searching for his father who's been in prison and who has shamed his family. And then my character is kind of a girl that's from his father's past and she's just fresh out of a mental institution and she's she's also in search of the father for different reasons. Yeah. So her and the boy, her and Ned Rifle kind of join forces to find him and it's a bit of a road trip movie and it's kind of a, a little bit of a kind of a thriller. It a is. There, it's, it gets violent. There's violence, sex. There's sex and violence and tension. And all this is quite a departure from your background, which is improv comedy. Obviously, you liked Hartley and were excited to be in it, but did you also choose this film because you wanted to mix it up as a performer? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, there were a couple of reasons I really wanted to do it. And one was, you know, I'm so associated with playing like unmotivated um, disaffected characters and like mm. I just really love characters that have such a strong motivation for something yeah. and she's kind of a genius too I mean she's a yeah, complex and she's really, person she's way smarter than I am so it's <laughs> I really I mean I it's really it, I learned a lot I mm. read a lot of French symbolist poetry not to sound pretentious but I was just you know I really got into it well I think it's a fine performance could talk about it forever but now it's time for two standard questions okay you know this. You've been on our show before. Hope Maybe I have. you have two different answers. Uh, the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I feel, I'm afraid I'm going to say the same thing I said last time. What did I say last time? Do you remember? You said you don't like it when people say, how much are you like your characters? Because that's like asking if you're actually a good actor. I was just about to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's great. Um, then, no, no. You know what? No, that, I'll think that'll save one. us time because that's legitimately your answer. Okay. So our second question is tell us something we don't know. Okay, I'm pretty sure I remember last time I talked about dolphin penises. <laughs> so I'm not going to go there. You did. You have a good memory. Um, did I ever talk about Ghana? No. I lived in Ghana for two months when I was in college. Hmm. And I had a really crazy experience because I took that um, anti-malaria medication called Larium, mm-hmm. which is very controversial. Okay. And I had a really bad hallucinogenic neuropsychological side effects oh my goodness from this drug and i was it manifested in like i had like a crazy panic attack on a beach 
and I was convinced that um, I wasn't safe and that people were <laughs> trying to kill me. Oh my gosh. And they they took me to the hospital. They drove me to the military hospital in the middle of the night. But it was really bizarre. I had one, I remember before I had the major panic attack, standing outside, and I was feeling these like little raindrops on my arms, mm-hmm. and it was sunny out, and I kept going, it's so weird that it's raining because it's so sunny out. Where's the rain coming from? My goodness. Yeah. And my roommate was like, it's not raining. You're insane. And I was like, oh, I'm insane. So ever since then, I, I think I lost my mind. You were straight up And tripping. now I'm in Hollywood. <laughs> that prepare you for Hollywood in some way? You know, I mean, now, oh, yeah. now you can any, deal with any, anything. Yeah, any um, <laughs> aspiring actress, I always tell them, go to Ghana. Yeah. Take the wrong drugs. Almost lose your mind. Take some drugs. Freak <laughs> out. And you'll be set. And then you can just walk right into Harvey Weinstein's office and <laughs> and, and nail the and nail it. Aubrey Plaza. She stars in the new Hal Hartley film, Ned Rifle. It opens in select theaters this week. And Brendan, you know, when I traveled through India a while back, I took malaria medications. Hmm, it's true. Really? And I was totally fine. Well, this there one. you go. That's body chemistry for you. Um, that cat eats lightning. All right. Huh? What? to eavesdrop. Tignataro's album Live, about being diagnosed with cancer, was acclaimed as one of the best stand-up comedy albums ever. Her new comedy special debuts on Showtime next month. Today we overhear her tell a painfully funny tale. Several years ago, I had four impacted wisdom teeth that needed to be surgically removed. It was going to take place at a hospital, and I needed somebody to sign me in and then drive me home because I was going to be put under. The woman that I was dating at the time didn't want to take a day off from work, so she agreed to sign me in and then leave. (laughs) That's uh, true love. So I had my wisdom teeth removed, and then when they moved me from the gurney, I woke up prematurely. I was completely on drugs and out of my mind. I was scared that they were going to notice the person that signed me in was not there. And um, so I I realized, like, i got to get out of there. I just bolted out of the hospital doing that crooked type of run where everything is just slanted. I got out to my car, drove off with my eyes basically wanting to shut came to the first red light and I was awoken when I rear-ended the car in front of me. This guy came up to my window just, of course, outraged. There was no damage done, but he was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. Like thinking, yeah, what's your problem, buddy? Can a woman get a little shut-eye between traffic lights here? By the time I got home, I was in so much pain that I needed to get back to the hospital. My friends Beth and Leslie lived in the apartment below me, so I went to knock on their door, and there was no answer, and I was just banging, just, Leslie, because I saw Leslie's car parked in the back. She didn't answer, so I was lying on the patio trying to peek into the bottom of the window of the door just to see if she was home because in my head I was making up that she knew I was in pain and was refusing to help me. 
I'm lying there banging, Lele, Lele, no response. So I go down off the balcony where I run into this woman. She's sunbathing. I come around the corner, she's like, oh my God. And I was like, hi. Uh, and I was pointing up to the building. I said, do you know Beth and Leslie? And she said, no. And I said, if you see Beth and Leslie, they live in that apartment. And will you tell them that Tig needs to go to the hospital? And she was just holding her chest, staring at me in shock. Just, she just said, yeah. And I said, thank you. And I went back around. I thought I'd try and knock on the door again. And when I walked up to the apartment this time, I saw a trail of blood leading to their door. And I was like, oh my gosh, Beth and Leslie have been murdered in a tiny pool of blood. I bang on the door again this time, just Leslie! And this time she opens the door. And then she was just like, oh my God. And uh, I was like, oh, I don't, you know, and, and then she pointed out that I was just <laughs> covered in blood. And then I was like, oh, that's my blood. I've been brutally murdered in my mouth. And I kept reflecting back the guy I rear-ended. That's why he was like, are you okay? I'm sure I had blood dripping out of my mouth. And then the sunbather, I can't believe she wasn't like, can I take you to the hospital? <laughs> now... I'm short four teeth in my mouth and one girlfriend. Tignataro, the comedy special Knock Knock, it's Tignataro, airs on Showtime next month. And you are listening through gritted teeth to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, we've talked a lot about fusion foods on this show, right? Sushi mm-hmm. burritos. Croissant donuts, yeah, of hybrids. Course. But uh, somehow we've never talked about maybe the most fusion-happy cuisine in America, Hawaiian food. Ah, you know? the state that gave us Spam sushi. That's right, musubi. <laughs> uh, well, a couple of weeks back, the L.A. restaurant A-Frame, owned by star chef Roy Choi, switched to a Hawaiian menu... Hmm. So it seemed like a good excuse to speak to executive chef Johnny Yu, who spearheaded the project and spent years in Hawaii. I first asked why he, a Korean immigrant who grew up in L.A. eating a lot of cuisines, is so devoted to this food. When I lived in Hawaii, I was in my mid-20s. It just had a real big impact in my life. You know, being Korean-American and living in an area where I'm in America, but I see people that look just like me. And the food and the flavors and the ingredients, it was just so familiar to me. I just felt like a real connection to it. And it's kind of like a Korean flavor profile, but not Korean. Exactly. Uh, it was basically like me. It was a mashup. It, it just felt very comfortable and home. Well, let's talk about how this mashup of Asian and American and other cuisines came to be. What is, what's the traditional Hawaiian food? How does it start? Well, the food of Hawaii, I guess, originated in the third century uh, with the migration of the Polynesians. They brought you know, certain staples like taro, sweet potato, seaweed, stuff like that. And uh, the next uh, kind of evolution was on the late 18th century with the Europeans and the uh, missionaries from New England bringing over their influences. Soon after that, about a century later, you got a lot of different cultures from China, Japan, Korea, uh, Southeast Asia, Portugal. Uh, Man, who didn't come to Hawaii? Yeah, well, at that point in time, the indigenous Hawaiians were kind of being spread thin. 
So they needed to have an influx of workers at the plantations. And that's when rice becomes a staple, I guess, when the Asian workers bring it? Yeah, that's when uh, you know, the Japanese were prevalent. You know, rice became a huge staple. They built rice patties. And eventually, all these different foods commingled and local food was kind of invented. So the, the term local food is actually referring to a fusion food of all of these different influences. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like, a, like the Hawaiian Creole food. And of course, your uh, menu is based on local food. You want to give me maybe uh, your favorite local food dishes you decided to work with? Well, one of the dishes uh, that's really popular is called a loco moco, and it's two scoops of rice, a hamburger patty, some gravy, and uh, egg. The thing that I love about that dish is that it sounds like something that I, as a kid, would have made up for myself. It's like, I love rice, I love a hamburger, I love eggs. It's like, why not put it all together in well, gravy? That's interesting you said that because that's how it literally actually came about, from my understanding. It was invented by a gentleman who owned a diner in Hawaii. And there were a bunch of kids that used to always hang out in front. And one day, one of the kids asked the, the owner, can you make me something different? You know, so the gentleman went back and he got some rice and put a hamburger patty on and he had some background in fine dining. So he made a gravy, threw an egg on there. And he basically named it Loco Moco because the kid's name was Moco. And it rhymed with Loco. He acted kind of crazy. So it sounded good. And that's how it came about. It's amazing. Although my understanding is that your loco moco, which I hope I'm going to get a chance to taste here, has kind of like a Japanese curry sauce instead of like a traditional gravy. Yeah, yeah. So certain dishes, I want to kind of just uh, keep the dish in its form the same, but just tweak little components and garnishes to it. It's still, it's like taking a food that is already a hybrid and a, and a mashup and a fusion and then fusing onto it some more. Why, do, why can't people leave Hawaiian food alone? Well, that's, that's, that's what Hawaiian food is. It's really defined. I mean, Hawaiian food is always evolving. I feel like, you know, we're kind of just uh, mimicking the evolution of Hawaiian cuisine in our own right. Can I try some of this, Loco Moco? Sure. All right, so here it is. <laughs> The first thing that I have to say is these are not subtle looking dishes. This yeah. is like a honking huge amount of food. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just right in your face. There's no pretentiousness about it. Is this typical if I were to get this on the island? Oh, absolutely. Maybe not as composed as that, but uh, yeah. I mean, if you know anything about Asian culture, which you know Hawaii is very influenced by, it's about feeding, feeding until you can't eat no more, until you can almost throw up, you know? And that's, that's, Yay. That's how we, you know, kind of exude our love. Well, there's a lot of love on this table. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm looking at, it's like a big cake of rice on top of which is the burger. On top of that is a lovely sunny side up egg. And then I guess this is pickled onion on the side here? Yeah, it's a pickled pearl onions that we uh, pickle in a umeboshi pickling liquid. All right. Let me put all this together in a mess on my fork. Here we go. This is making me so happy. Really nice, bold flavors. Yeah, it's, it's full of flavor. That's kind of Roy's and our, my signature. We hit you hard. There's nothing subtle about anything that we make. Uh, I would probably recommend you crack that yolk so it goes all over. That's true. The first bite was had uh, some salt and some sharpness to it, but uh, now I'm cracking the egg yolk, and it's pouring over the rice, and I'm sure that is going to give it a little bit of uh, mellow richness. I'm going to try that. Oh, yeah. That really changes the flavor. It does, it does. That egg yolk kind of just like nicely rounds everything. My understanding, by the way, is that you're going to Hawaii tomorrow. Is that right? I am going to Hawaii tomorrow. What's your first dish when you get off the plane? Oh, God. Uh, some fresh uh, poke. The most basic version is fish, Hawaiian salt, uh, a little bit of shoyu, and uh, seaweed. 
Don't let anybody tell you that Hawaiian food doesn't have a lot of range. It goes from hamburger to something as, as subtle as that. All over the place. All over the place. Johnny Yu, executive chef at A-Frame in L.A. And folks, if you're about to vacation in Hawaii, stop by dinnerpartydownload.org first. You'll find Johnny's recommendation for the best pork chops on the islands, he says. And for those unfamiliar, a pork chop is like spam before it goes into a can. That's uh, Meanwhile, precisely. coming up, author John Ronson shames us all for shaming. Hmm. It's the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we will publicly praise John Ronson, the author of a new book on public shaming. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That is correct. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around are Tom Sharpling and John Worcester. They're the comedy duo behind The Best Show, a podcast hosted by Sharpling. Since launching 15 years ago as a radio show on New Jersey station WFMU, it's gained a huge following. Listeners tune in to hear Sharpling spin music, chat with celebrity guests, and most of all, conduct phone conversations with characters created and voiced by Worcester. Yes. They're amazing. They include Philly Boy Roy, who embodies all things Philadelphian, <laughs> and The Gorch, a senior citizen who claims the Fonz was based on him without permission. <laughs> on March 31st, they release a box set called Sharpling and Worcester, the best of the best show, which features 20 hours of their finest exchanges. Man. And guys, welcome to the show. Yes. Hello, Tom. Hi. And John. Hello. 20 hours. Wow. Yeah. That's several months worth of our show. And you still need more. <laughs> that, that's why <laughs> you're here right. let me let me ask you you both have spent a lot of your lives in the independent music scene john you drum for super chunk tom you direct music videos how did comedy start leaking into your rock and roll lives i don't i'm not much for comedy actually it's not really my <laughs> wow. scene that was a joke <laughs> see it was see? you wouldn't know that because you're not into comedy no. right over my head <laughs> yeah no i my whole life music and comedy were the two things that I was passionate about, and I really didn't have any aptitude for making music at all, so I was a fan of music. Doing the radio show, starting as a music show, and then slowly the balance changing to where comedy got more and more into it, and then John and I did our first call, which was called Rock Rotten Rule. That's right, and Rock Rotten Rule, for those who don't know, this was when John called into the show pretending to be a, a rather snobby writer who had divided all rock bands into one of those three categories. They rocked, rotted, or ruled. So, for example, the Beatles, they yeah. rocked, right? I think they only rocked because they, they had a lot of stinkers. I think that was the, the term. <laughs> they didn't rule. They just rocked because they had some bad songs. Exactly. And David Bowie yeah. rotted, if I remember. Be, uh, too many changes. <laughs> he was bad because he kept evolving. Same as Neil Young. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, the criteria is pretty random. Let's, uh, let's hear a clip from Rock, Rotten, Rule. Well, there are certain things that, that, that would, would keep someone from rocking, although they could rule. Like Bruce Hornsby rules, but he doesn't rock because he doesn't play the guitar. Okay, so you can't rock yeah. if, you don't, if there's no guitar in your group. Exactly. But you can potentially rule. Yeah. So Bruce Hornsby rules. He rules. He rules. Now, you, you can rule without rocking, yeah. right? Yeah. Can you rock without ruling? Never. 
<laughs> but I do want to go back to something that you said just a second ago, Tom, about, you know, you didn't have musical aptitude and you ended up in comedy. It does seem like comedy and music go hand in hand. Like Saturday Night Live has always had that rock and roll component. What is the connection between comedians and musicians? I think they are different. I, I don't think it's as much of a connection as people think they are. I think they're just doing similar they're doing their own thing. Maybe that's the connection is people yeah. are just... They're kind of proud outsiders. Yeah. And they tour. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of indie rock comedy connection B- back in the 90s when it kind of first started was that bands would trade these tapes, these comedy tapes, whatever they were. They could be prank calls like the Jerky oh, Boys. Man. And that's kind of how Tom and I first got our stuff out there, the, the uh, Rock, Rotten Rule tape. We gave it to bands like Guided by Voices. and This uh, is pre-internet, obviously. Yeah, this is like the late 90s. You just hand out cassette tapes and people would dub them. In yeah. it. And they would listen yeah. to them as they were driving around. Yeah, that's kind of what you listen to during the day because you're, you're blowing your ears out at night playing music. You don't really want to hear loud rock in the van. Yeah. All right. Well, you helped a lot of uh, rock and rollers get happily from uh, one gig to another. Are you ready to help our listeners? They've sent in questions. Yes. Sure. All right. Well, our first question comes from Alex in Lexington, Kentucky. And Alex writes, is there ever an occasion formal enough where it's appropriate to fork and knife a hoagie? <laughs> so, huh. so it's a formal occasion, right. but they're serving hoagies. Well, if, if I'm correct, and I think I am, I've heard that Every other Wednesday at the White House is Hoagie Wednesday. So there's, <laughs> so no, there's no way they're eating those with their hands. So that makes it okay, though? I mean, in Philadelphia, I mean, growing up there, I feel like I've never seen anyone take a knife and fork to a Hoagie. I've never seen it. I just Guys, think actually, I went to, I had my first cheesesteak in Philly last summer, and I forked and knifed it. No, you didn't. I did. I used no, a fork and knife. They don't even have forks in there. Did things... you bring your own fork yeah. and knife? Was it because it was messy? It was very messy. A lot of whiz. Did you get whiz on it or what? I did get whiz. I got the authentic thing with the cheese was on it. Okay. By the way, the thing that nobody talks about and those cheesesteaks is the, the hot sauce. That's what's really making it, that grainy... Like, Are you sure you had a cheesesteak? Yeah, that's not a cheesesteak. You don't no. put hot sauce in a cheesesteak. Where'd what? you go? Are you sure that was Philadelphia? Was it a Mexican restaurant? I don't know what you had. You're Guys, eating. was I lied to? Yeah, I don't know. You were tricked. You... I feel like I'm losing my mind right now. <laughs> you got a fork and knife. You're eating something with hot sauce all over it. I don't it. know. You, that's the equivalent of de Blasio taking a fork and knife to a slice, Rico. <laughs> Who knows um, what you experienced. But Alex, I think you got your answer. Yes, yeah, save the fork and knife for the White House, and let's quickly pivot from my shame to this question from JR in Los Angeles, far from Philly. JR writes, most of the movies my friend sees or the vacation she goes on are, capital letters, the best thing ever, exclamation point. The hyperbole gets exhausting. How do I kindly rein her in a little? I figured as the best show you guys might know about superlatives. Huh. Tom. Well, I, I I use superlatives a lot, but mine go the other way where it'll be like, <laughs> that was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. And it's a sandwich. And it's a sandwich, <laughs> maybe with hot sauce all over it and meeting it with a fork and knife. Guys, I'm um, sitting right here. I, I would say you can make adjustments to your friend, but you might want to make adjustments to yourself also. You might not be... Uh, excited enough about things uh, there's yeah. probably a middle ground between the two have a little so joy in is it life. a middle ground or are you suggesting that jr could be the worst friend ever <laughs> this guy, well first of all this is the worst question i've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life uh, excuse me guys sorry to interrupt our producer's trying to tell us something we actually have a call let's see if we can patch in this caller they have a question for you an etiquette question hello yeah hey it's roy in philadelphia 
<laughs> hey. I, got a, I got a question for you guys. Oh, totally want to help you with your question. Is it a beautiful day in Philadelphia? Oh, today? it's great. Yeah, I'm doing this new <laughs> thing where I put I put this hot pepper sauce on my cheesesteaks. Uh-huh. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, ain't no one else doing it. Thanks, Roy. Yeah. Oh, okay, huh? Thanks for the backup. Okay, here's the deal. What's going on? It's a very serious conundrum. Okay. I got a totally cool 1978 dune buggy that's up on blocks in my backyard. It's been there for like the last two years because I can't afford no tires for okay. it. The other day, my neighbor, Mike Rutherford, not uh-huh. the guy in Genesis, but he, you know, he got the same name. He left a note for me saying that Greg Lazinski, that's the name of my dune buggy. Yeah. yeah, named after a Philadelphia Philly. Oh, yeah, the best ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, yeah. Could, he could eat a lot of hoagies. My neighbor says that my dune buggy's become this big eyesore, and it's making the neighborhood look trashy. Uh-huh. My question is, how many days should I wait before I wrap Mike's house in 50 rolls of toilet paper so he don't think I did it? All right. So it's inevitable okay. that the house is going to get wrapped with toilet paper. The question is, how many days, Tom, should Roy wait? before the wrapping begins. Well, Roy, I would say, um, I think you just go for it. You know where you're going to end up with things. There's no reason to prolong anything. Well, it can't go wrong, right? (laughs) No, (laughs) foolproof plan. You want Greg Lazinski to be uh, street ready again, right? Oh, yeah. I got races coming up this summer. Yeah. So, Roy, there's your answer. You're free to walk across the street to Mike Rutherford, not Mike Rutherford from Genesis's house, and uh, wrap away. Start rapping. <laughs> look out, Mike. <laughs> All right. It's going to look like winter tomorrow. And, Mike, if you're listening, get the hell out of Dodge, because here comes Roy. Guys, Tom, John, thanks a lot for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Tom Sharpling and John Worcester of the podcast The Best Show, their 16-CD box set, appropriately titled The Best of the Best Show, comes out this week. Find it at bestshow.net. That's right. And folks, what you'll find at our website is peace of mind. Email your etiquette questions and they shall be answered. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Author John Ronson has spent decades hanging out with and writing about people on the fringes of society. His book, The Psychopath Test, examined, obviously, the mentally ill. He's written empathetic, witty essays about religious extremists and those who believe they are psychic. But his latest book is about mostly everyday folks who have been banished to the fringes. It's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and it examines what happens when people like the infamous PR worker Justine Sacco tweet for instance, an off-color joke, and find their lives ruined when they're pilloried in social media. The book comes out this week, and John, welcome back to the show. Hi, it's it's great to be back. I think we've all seen or at least heard about someone saying or doing something questionable who's then shamed in the media or online about it. But how pervasive a problem is this really? Are we really witnessing more of this than we have in the past? Oh, yeah, un- undoubtedly. There's, I think it's a renaissance of public shaming. It's like there's a war on human nature and its flaws. Obviously, the really huge shamings, the life-destroying ones, only come along once in a while. And those are the ones I'm concentrating on in my book. But, you know, little mini-shamings, little slaps around the face... Uh, happen to everybody all the time. And of course, one of the arguments in the book is that uh, this is one of the worst forms of punishment you can endure. No, you know what? There is nothing worse. And I think anybody who's gone through any kind of shaming will understand what I'm about to say now. It is profound 
profoundly traumatising to be told you are cast out. If 50,000 people are suddenly tweeting you and telling you that you're not a proper human being and you need to go, mm. that is seriously depressing. I mean, there's this sort of misconception that, you know, the Internet is not the real world. The Internet is the real world. I met people who went through these kinds of public shaming. Just all, and I'm not talking about, yeah, politicians who, who made some terrible transgression. I'm talking about ordinary people who made a joke that landed badly, who didn't sure. leave home for like a year. All the, you know, all the great thinkers of the uh, 18th and 19th century were saying this docks and the pillory. This stuff is monstrous. We've got to stop it. And, and yet we've brought it all back on Twitter. And I think the fact that people, you know, some people will think that, oh, it's no big deal. I'm sure they're fine already. Yeah. There's a word for that. It's called cognitive dissonance. It's the fact that we can't handle the fact that we've just ruined somebody's life because we like to see ourselves as like good people. So what we either do is say, oh, they deserved it because they were you know, a sociopath or, or a racist or, or some, you know, untrue label. Or we say, ah, oh, they're fine. It's no big deal. Well, let me give you an example that's sort of between, say, a corrupt politician who's being called out on the Internet and the people who are having their lives ruined because of an ill-advised joke. Mm. There's, you spend a lot of time talking about the uh, science writer and journalist Jonah Lehrer, who's yeah. kind of between these two poles. He, Among other things, for those who don't know, it was discovered he had made up quotes and attributed them to Bob Dylan. And then he lied about it repeatedly to a reporter, which for a time at least destroyed his career. You seem to believe it's time to lay off of him. Why does a, a journalist who lied get a break? The world that I feel comfortable in is a world where somebody's mistake is, is within context of wider human behavior as opposed to somebody's mistake swallowing them up and all they become is that mistake. I mean, that's, that's the world I, I feel most comfortable in. And there was a moment with Jonah where he tried to apologize at a lunch uh, that was run by this foundation called the Knight Foundation. And they put a Twitter screen, a giant Twitter screen behind his head so people could tweet their views on Jonah's apology live as it went out. While and he was apologizing. While he was apologizing. And there was a second monitor screen that was in his eyeline. So while he was apologizing, people were tweeting, you know, Jonah Lear is just a sociopath. This is boring. Jonah Lehrer boring us into trying to forgive him. And, you know, Joe, he's tainted as a writer forever. It was brutal. You know, is that the world that we want? Is that the world that, that we want to create for ourselves? I brought this up before with you, but especially after reading this book, it feels mm. like it's your life work in some way to demonstrate a kind of superhuman empathy for people who others deride. And frankly, some of whom have done things that one could argue deserve some derision. Why is that so important to you? Yeah, and I've certainly met people over 30 years who have done terrible things, unbelieved terrible things. You know, yeah. I've been outed at, at, as a Jew at a jihad training camp and, and so on. But right. I don't know, I, I just, I, I believe increasingly in empathy and trying to understand somebody as opposed to sticking your fingers in your ears or, or being one of those terrible journalists who just, you know, it's all a big combative performance. I believe in understanding people. And I mean, once in a while you meet somebody who is incapable of remorse. I mean, I wrote a book, mm -hmm. The Psychopath Test, about people who have a kind of, yeah, sort of neurological absence of remorse. Even with them, you're thinking, well, it's not their fault they were born that way. This, this suddenly occurs to me. On, on some level, did you write this because you are afraid that you might one day be shamed over something that was unintentionally offensive to someone? Oh, there's no... I mean, I'm an anxious person. And the two ways my anxiety manifests itself is, you know, if I can't get my 
teenage son on the phone at two in the morning, you know, my brain really rockets off into hyperspace. And, you know, have I done something wrong in my work? You know, th- those are the two things that really... So yeah. I say to Jonah, actually at one point in, in the book, I say to Jonah Lehrer, what happened to you is my worst nightmare. And Jonah replied, yeah, and it was mine too. At one point in the book, you talk about the, this is a quote, pleasurable rush that overwhelms us when mm. we become part of a mob that takes someone down. Do we know from where and why that sensation arises? I think Twitter, uh, a friend of mine, Adam Curtis, the documentary maker, calls it a kind of mutual grooming, that what we do on Twitter is we surround ourselves by like-minded people. So it's like it's a constant approval going on. You know, mm. we say, you know, this person's a, a monster, Everybody around us congratulates us for saying that. It's a great feeling to be told that you're right. <laughs> and um, so there's no incentive to, to change your mind. If, if 100,000 people are, are tearing apart Justine Sacco for her ill-advised AIDS joke, then there's absolutely no incentive to say, I, I'm not sure that the tearing apart of this woman is justified because everybody else on your timeline is tearing her apart and and it's much safer and it's much more comfortable to join in with the throng. And, of course, what is this the opposite of? It's the opposite of democracy Mm, Um, because in democracy we want to hear what other people have to say. Do you tweet differently now? Well, you know, so the New York Times extracted my, my book a couple of weeks ago and a lot of people emailed me to say... I'm sending your book to my children, you know, to warn them to be careful before they press send. And my response to that was, you know, I, I understand why you would do that, but I kind of think that's that's not the message that yeah. I want my book to... My, you know, that's, that's... That's self-censorship in a way. Yeah, and it's, and it's victim-blaming. So, yes, I am more careful before writing a tweet, but I don't like that about myself. And what I would rather is a social media where everybody's just a bit more forgiving and cognizant of nuances instead of a social media where everybody's, you know, tiptoeing around some kind of abusive parent. Writer John Ronson, if the internet feels a little more civilized starting March 31st, that's because his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, comes out that day. Folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Jackson Musker is our producer. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Ravi Carmen engineered. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And here's a fun fact, everyone. Though we are full of youthful vigor, we are, in fact, approaching our 300th birthday. It's true. We're older than America. Our 300th episode approaches. We'll be celebrating with a special podcast-only show on April 10th. So if you haven't yet, subscribe to our podcast at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right. And while you're there, sign up for our email newsletter. It's full of cocktail recipes and, this week, pictures of Fran Drescher's Pomeranian. You'll understand when you read it. Sign up by April 10th, and you may win some DPD swag. Meanwhile, bon appétit.